Last week, the Senate Armed Services Committee heard testimony regarding a so-called revolving door between the Pentagon and the companies that it awards contracts to. The SASC's Personnel Subcommittee presented a report from Senator Elizabeth Warren on the topic. It expresses concerns about undue influence and potential ethical dilemmas of having so many former DOD officials working in the private sector. As you can imagine, this has the folks who represent the interests of those companies worried. To hear more about that and other legislative developments, I spoke to Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. The report that Senator Warren issued, um, she calls it an investigation. It's about a seven-page report on um, the number of former high-level DOD folks who have ended up in private sector. And this piqued our interest over an industry because, you know, obviously we are the folks who are looking for to hire expertise, to hire people with high integrity, such as those coming out of the uniformed services. And so this was a, a hearing that we watched very, very closely. And involved in it were several branches of the military as well as DOD. I, I am curious what the uh, government side of uh, folks said, whether or not they've even found it an issue or not. You know, a few years ago, Senator Warren introduced legislation to increase restrictions on post-government employment. And I'll call that PGE, post-government employment. You know, right now you have a two-year cooling off period, et cetera. The DOD folks, um, and I'll say it's, it was the general counsel folks, um, so it was DOD, Army, Navy, and Air Force, you know, they think they have fairly tight constraints, ethical constraints on what post-government employment looks like for former high-level folks. For example, um, if you are a three- or four-star admiral or general, you have different requirements than, say, someone lower-ranking if you were separating out of the service or, or retiring. And so they walked the committee through sort of what the considerations are in coming up with post-government employment restrictions. And so that's the perspective they came from, which was we they think the the restrictions are adequate and obviously the the investigation from Senator Warren is is on the other side of the of the coin there of that they're not adequate that they should be tighter one of the things that her report goes into is the number of former high level DOD folks who are they use the words uh cashing in on their expertise or or otherwise you know in the industry we don't really use that the contractors look to hire you know former senior folks for their expertise and as I mentioned earlier, for their loyalty, you know, they don't check their honor or their integrity at the door once they sign retirement papers. Um, they're still pretty loyal to the United States. And the contractors are generally as committed to the federal mission set as government employees. And so, you know, from an industry perspective, we do take a, a couple of issues with the report that Senator Warren put out. Yeah. And from the industry standpoint, I imagine that the main concern on your side of things is that certain companies may have more of a foot inside the door when they hire certain individuals. And, you know, that may break down the, okay, now, now we're facing against each other. You know, how do they address that? And, and what is your concerns from the PSC standpoint regarding that? Now, that's a great question. You know, the, I mentioned post-government employment restrictions. I know of no uh, former senior person who doesn't know their ethics lawyer's number by heart back at the Department of Defense. And so, you know, if anything comes up that is even crossing a line into undue influence, you know, they call that person up. And so one of the things that we are looking for, you know, if, if Senator Warren reintroduces that legislation, is to have a conversation about what is appropriate at the end of the day, if you are involved in a contract award, 
you are for life not allowed to deal with the the implications of, of that award. So, you know, we we at PSC recently hired someone who had worked for the Navy and she has she she wasn't a, a senior executive service member, but she was a civil servant and she's got post government, you know, employment restrictions and she knows her government ethics lawyer number by heart and she can reach out and contact them at any point. And so I do think there are really good, I would say, uh, safeguards in place. But I would like to have a conversation with Senator Warren and her staff who put together this report about what they're really trying to get at and, and how can we work together to get us there. And let's bring the focus back to the people who are actually doing these jobs, uh, other than obviously the money is probably pretty good and it's a nice little stipend after you retire. But uh, what are some of the other reasons for wanting to join private industry after putting in many years of government service? When you retire out of government service after decades of, of being in the military, you know, you have a, a built up a knowledge base and a skill set. Yes, you also have contacts because, you know, anybody who works in an industry for decades would have contacts. But really, it's the knowledge base that that contract, you know, private companies are looking for. It's not so much, I would say, undue influence, which is, I think, also a phrase that, that the senator uses. I think it's also, you know, they are the ones who are familiar with the program. And I'll give you an example. Recently announced was this Australia, UK, US Trilateral Security Pact, which is also known as AUKUS. And it's a huge step forward to what we are trying to accomplish from a national security perspective in the Indo-Pacific area of responsibility. It wouldn't have happened without engagement on all sides, military, civilian, and industry. And I think as we move forward in things like that, bringing knowledge to bear is critical. And I think it's not like you can find a, someone who has the same experience and knowledge set as a three-star general or admiral just growing up organically outside of the military. You're going to have to take someone who is recently separated or retired. One other point, Eric, that I'll bring up is – One of the individuals mentioned in the senator's investigative report is from a company, but they had left government 17 years before they started working for the private sector in this area. And so I would like to talk to the senator's staff about why they they cited somebody, you know, who's high level up in a large defense contractor, citing that as a revolving door issue when he waited 17 years before going into defense industry. I think, again, would really like to get at what the senator's trying to accomplish here and work with her and her staff to figure out what right looks like. That'd be a slow door to go into. (laughs) We're speaking with Stephanie Castro from the Professional Services Council. Uh, That wasn't the only concern defensively on the Hill uh, this month. Earlier in April, uh, DOD sent a third package of its legislative proposals to Congress, and it includes a way for them to kind of get started when Congress is lagging behind and giving them the funding for new projects. Uh, What can you tell me about what DOD sent to the uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill? More often than not, we do start the fiscal year under what's called a continuing resolution, which is a straight line. We don't have a a full year appropriation passed for the the coming fiscal year. So instead, they just do a straight line from the last approved full year appropriation. This legislative proposal is very interesting to me because it's about um, doing some design work um, and other sort of low rate production work on platforms that are really, really important. So things like hypersonics or kinetics coming out from a from a DOD perspective, I 100% see where they're coming from. Um, They would like to continue work um, under a continuing resolution. You cannot start a new program. And that often is a problem for these high-end, fast-paced requirements that are coming down. 
you know, whether they're considering a Chinese scenario or, you know, an Eastern European scenario, you know, we, we are trying to field capabilities at the speed of relevance. That's hard when you don't have full year funding. So I understand where the Department of Defense is coming from, where they'd like to be able to do some design work, experiments, etc. On the other hand, one of the big impetuses to pass a full year appropriation is because you can't start new starts. And members of of Congress go, you know, we would like to move forward and field these capabilities. Let's go ahead and pass a full year appropriation. So I think this is this is going to be an interesting area to watch. I think there's probably going to be some reluctance on the Hill initially to consider this legislative proposal because it does give them an out. And, you know, people like to pass full year appropriations to get back to their districts and, and fundraise and do that kind of stuff. I don't think Congress likes having continuing resolutions that historically mess up the December holidays. Um, And so I think as we move forward watching this, I'm curious to see what the Department of Defense comes, um, what arguments it comes with to the Hill for this uh, legislative proposal. Yeah, and I imagine that this is all compounding into the debt ceiling debate that is now ongoing in the House of Representatives. What can you tell me is the latest on what you're hearing from your folks up there on the Hill? You know, when you go back, you know, it's what 12 years ago when we had these conversations in the Obama administration about whether you have a clean extension of the debt limit or you have um, riders on it. You know, we had that conversation again a few years after that 2011 issue. What I'm hearing is that, you know, the, the House did pass what I believe is called um, the limit. Limit Save Grow Act of 2023. It is dead on arrival in the Senate because it does have a lot of um, tough pills to swallow. Whether this brings the White House back to the negotiating table to talk about anything other than a clean extension remains to be seen. I think um, we now know where the House Republicans stand, or at least 217 of them, um, where they stand. And so um, this could be an indication that they're going to go back to the negotiating table, but we still don't know what X date is. And so we don't know when we're going to hit that debt ceiling, uh, debt limit again. Um, And so anything can happen. I've never seen, and I've been in Washington now almost, you know, three decades. I've never seen it quite like this, where people are dug in on the debt limit this way and not even willing to talk about it. So we'll see what happens. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. 
And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I 
went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. 
Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.